Uh, it is uh, such an enormous blessing. Uh, thank you, sir. Um, uh, let's give an applause for my lovely assistant here. We, we appreciate that. <laughs> it is such a blessing to be a part of a, a singing church. <clears throat> I've been uh, to too many places where uh, they just didn't sing. They, they just sort of listen, and then everybody eats to their own. But uh, it, it feels like a, a worshiping church when you sing. And so thank you so much for the way that you sing. Very, very much. Well, if you are, are watching at home this morning, and uh, we're going to be sharing in communion uh, toward the end of the message, and so uh, I would encourage you, if you uh, have something there in the house that you can use as communion elements, crackers, whatever you can use for the bread, and whatever you might choose to use for the cup, the drink, uh, please uh, go ahead and, and, and grab that real quick as we're getting started this morning. <clears throat> How many of you... Um, have the ability to stand on your head. <laughs> I, see, I see some hands out there. And uh, for those of you that can, I want you to know I greatly admire you. Greatly admire you. And I'm very, very jealous as well because that was something, I, even as a kid, I, I was never able to do. Never able to do that. But if you haven't stood on your head in a long time, <laughs> I want to encourage you to be practicing that process some, because as we walk through these Beatitudes together, we are going to be feeling like we are standing on our head so much along the way. These Beatitudes are so countercultural. It's like welcome to Jesus' upside-down kingdom. <laughs> Well, these eight Beatitudes are Jesus' opening words of what's called the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapter 5. And if you have your Bibles, you might turn to Matthew chapter 5. But the sermon is found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And what I'd like for us to do, I think it's important for us to see these words in the context of Jesus' life and teaching. Because when he preaches this sermon, <clears throat> it takes place... Uh, shortly after Jesus has begun his public ministry. The first thing that Jesus did in public was to get baptized by the man known as John the Baptist. He wasn't the first Baptist. He was John the Baptizer. Uh, Jesus was baptized publicly by John the Baptist. And then immediately after that, he went into the wilderness to fast and pray for 40 days, 40 days. And it was during that time that he encountered great temptation. Satan came to him in the wilderness and tried to tempt him. And Jesus turned the devil on his head and walked away from those temptations with even greater clarification and determination as to the mission that God had sent him to earth to do. Well, with that encounter behind him then, that is when Jesus began his public preaching ministry. And the first word, the first pronouncement out of his mouth that would have cause anyone listening to him to immediately stop in their tracks is found in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. From that time on, that is after these 40 days in the wilderness, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then his very next recorded words in Matthew are the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with these eight Beatitudes. 
Now, each of these eight Beatitudes begins with the word blessed, which means many happinesses or many blessednesses, if you will. So, coming right on the heels, remember, right on the heels of Jesus' call to repentance, the Beatitudes then are a description of the blessings of the truly repentant heart. The blessings of repentance, which makes absolutely no sense to the world around us. Again, welcome to Jesus' upside-down kingdom, in which the poor in in spirit are blessed and honored, as well as those who mourn their spiritual state, those who operate out of meekness, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are merciful, who are pure in heart, who are peacemakers, even those who are persecuted. Well, in the Beatitudes... Jesus speaks to us both as individuals and as a community of believers. And as we walk through these together over the next several weeks, we're going to be sort of weaving in and out of of both of those contexts. But this morning, I want us to consider what he's saying to us primarily as individuals, but also as a community, but primarily as individuals in a very practical way. Let me ask, how many of you have ever spent any time in Chuck E. Cheese? In Chuck E. Cheese? I see those hands. Thank you very much. Uh, that, that is one place I, 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 that we have yet, are yet to take our grandchildren. Uh, I'm sure we'll get around to it, but that's one place we, we haven't been to yet. And uh, so I, we, we, we certainly took our girls when they were little. And, and at that time, maybe they still do have this, but they had a game called Whack-A-Mole. Like, they still have that game, Whack-A-Mole? You remember that game? I mean, these little moles would pop out of, uh, pop up out of these holes, and you had this rubber mallet, and you were to, you would whack the mole back down to the hole. And uh, you, but you couldn't win this game because you, you whack one and two pop up. You whack those two and three more pop up. I mean, it was an evil, evil game. <laughs> but that's life, right? Problem pops up, you whack it down. Two problems pop up. You wake two problems down, three more pop up. That's life. And it is the exact same way with persistent sins and temptations in life. Just about the time we think we've got one whacked down, it pops back up again. The same temptations and sins just keep coming back. They keep popping back up. And we're certainly not the first to have struggles like that, are we? The Apostle Paul knew nothing about whack-a-mole, but he sure knew about life. He writes in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, and then verses 18 through 19, he writes, I don't understand what I do. What I want to do, I don't do, but what I hate to do, I end up doing. I know that nothing good lives in my sinful nature. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Quick little survey here. Which of the following evil moles keep popping up in your life? (laughs) Here's a list, all right? How about stress, worry, anxiety, unhealthy compulsive behaviors, fear, unhealthy desire for more stuff? How about addictions, regrets, overeating, anger? Ever try to whack any of those down lately? (laughs) How about dishonesty? The need to be in control, bad personal financial habits, sinful habits, unhealthy relationships, perfectionism, resentment, you know, whack a whack a whack a whack a whack right? Well, if you answered yes 
to any of those things, then congratulations. That means you are a part of the human race. <laughs> okay. Very important question at this point. What is the primary cause of all of those problems? What's the primary cause? And not only those, but pretty much every problem that we have in life. Is it not plain God? Plain God? That is, when I act like I'm God and do what I want to do instead of what he tells me to do? I mean, that's the oldest problem known to man, is it not? Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not even touch it, which is not what God said, by the way. You must not even touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the servant said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. But when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who, by the way, had been standing there all this time, and he ate it. God says, of all those thousands of things to eat in the garden, there's only one that I don't want you to eat. And then Satan comes along and says, no, 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 no. You're not going to die. The truth of the matter is, is that if you do eat that one thing, you'll be like God. You can play God too. It's the oldest temptation there is. And sitting right there at the root of it is what? Pride. Pride. And when she saw that the fruit was desirable for gaining wisdom, desirable for being like God, she ate it. Pride. Think about it. What are the times in our lives when we think that we are as wise as God? Is it not every time God tells you to do something and you don't do it? Every time we do that, we are pridefully playing God. We are in effect saying, hey, I know better than God what is really going to make me happy, what is really going to bless my life. It's called pride. Proverbs 29 and verse 23 says, pride brings a person low. And not only does pride bring a person low, pride brings a nation low. Pride also brings a church low. Revelation chapter 3, Jesus addresses the problem of pride in a church in the church at Laodicea. One of his seven words addresses to the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
See, Jesus is calling the church to repentance. He calls all of us to repentance. But pride stands in the way. Pride prevents repentance. It's a huge problem, to say the least. But what's the solution? It's in this very first beatitude. Again, Jesus goes right to the solution for the problem of pride. Right to it. Jesus knows that nothing he's going to preach or teach, nothing he preaches or teaches will ever be acted upon unless the problem of pride is dealt with. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, Jesus said, Blessed, blessed. By by the way, (laughs) how many of you were born south of the Mason-Dixon line? How many of you were born north of the Mason-Dixon line? If you're born south of the Mason-Dixon line like me, this is pronounced blessed, okay? Just like we have in, in, our, in our logo. If you're born north of the Mason-Dixon line, it's pronounced blessed, <laughs> okay? Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? He's not talking here about physical poverty. He's talking about spiritual poverty, fully recognizing my sinfulness, my helplessness, my hopelessness apart from God. A translation that's simply called God's Word translation captures this first beatitude so well. It reads, blessed are those who recognize that they are spiritually helpless. The New Living Translation also, God blesses those who realize their need for Him. So, in order to be poor in spirit, I must first humbly admit that I need help, that I need God. Problem is, we spend far too much of our time in denial of that, in unrepentant, prideful denial of just how much we need God. I was reading the other day about a mechanic who accidentally swallowed some brake fluid. And really liked the taste of it, so he just kept drinking it. Finally, one of his buddies said, listen, man, you keep doing that, it's going to kill you. The mechanic said to him, hey, it's okay, don't worry about it, I can stop any time. <laughs> uh, so bad, so bad, so bad. <laughs> You say, yes, what's the point? (laughs) The point is this. We have to humbly admit our need. Humbly admit our need because the truth is we can't stop, can we? We can't. That's painful truth for us to hear, but the truth hurts. That's why it feels a whole lot safer to just stay in denial, to keep denying the truth, which is why I must humbly Admit, I need help. Maybe you're wrestling with this denial right now, thinking, well, I know I need help, but who doesn't? I mean, my need isn't really all that bad. Well, how bad does it have to get before you finally admit it? Here's how one person answered that question. The acid of my pain finally ate through the wall of my denial. 
Ouch. Doesn't that sound painful? It is. But you don't have to wait till that happens. 1 Peter chapter 5, 5C through 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And God will exalt you in due time if you humble yourselves under his mighty hand. Peter is saying that being poor in spirit, poor in spirit is the key to experiencing the grace of God's power in your life. His power to help you. Humbly admit your need so that you can have his, the grace of his power to help. Some people pridefully insist on thinking, well, yeah, I, you know, I can handle this. You know, I, I can fix myself. Whoa. Jeremiah 2, verse 13, God says, My people have committed two sins. One, they have forsaken me, God said, the spring of living water. Forsaken the God who truly has the answers. And then two, he says, they have dug their own broken wells, their own broken cisterns that can't hold water. He's saying your plans to fix it yourself don't hold water. You need to admit your need for God's help. And then, very logically, if you admit your need for God's help, then you have to humbly ask him for his help. Humbly ask. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul describes a time in his ministry when he was so discouraged. He was so depressed. I mean, it, it, was, it was not a good thing. And in fact, he said, we felt we were doomed to die. But he went on to say in verse 9, we saw how powerless we were to help ourselves. That's poor in spirit. That's admitting I need God's help. But he writes, that was good. Why in the world would that be good to admit my helplessness, my powerlessness? For then, Paul says, we put everything into the hands of God. You know, it's been said that sometimes you don't know that God is all you need until God is all you have. Well, Paul continues, for then we put everything into the hands of God who alone could save us, for he can even raise the dead. See, Paul's just using good spiritual logic here. He says, if God can raise a dead person, then he can sure help me. If God can raise a dead person, he can sure help you. There is nothing that he cannot help you with. But let's be careful not to miss something else here that, that, that's critical. Paul says, we were powerless to help ourselves. That was good. For then we put what? Everything in the hands of God. He put everything in God's hands. That is a picture of total Surrender, total surrender. That's what repentance is all about. Have you come to a personal place of total surrender in your life? Where you say, Lord, everything in my life, the good, the bad, the ugly, the rotten, the happy, the sad, the ups, the downs, I put it all, everything into your hands. And know that, that that's not just a one time for all decision. That's a decision really that we need to make each and every day. Each day. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Total surrender is becoming poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then what does Jesus promise? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, notice something that's, that's unique to only, only this and only one of the, of the Beatitudes, and that is, it, it is in the, the promise here is in the present tense. The present tense. That seems strange because, I mean, isn't heaven a future blessing? Isn't it something we just look forward to out there after we die? <laughs> and again, the other Beatitudes, except for the other one at the very end, are all in the future tense as well. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But here in this first one, Jesus is talking about a taste of heaven that you can have now that you can have today, that you can have right now, literally right now. And what is it? It's the presence of God. The presence of God. You say, well, I'm a Christian. Isn't God present with me all the time? Yes. <laughs> but it was, so much of the time, our pride you know, pushes him to uh, some far little tiny corner in our life where most of what we're feeling is our pride. We're not feeling much of his presence. He wants to give you his, he wants to fill you with his presence, his lordship, the presence of Christ. There was the poor in spirit taste the greatest blessing of heaven again now, his personal presence. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, for this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. He says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He said the, the Lord lives in, in the highest of heaven. He, he lives in the high and exalted, the high and holy place. But he also lives inside those who are poor in spirit. Those who humbly make all the room in the world for him in their hearts. What a promise. In other words, heaven comes to the humble before the humble ever gets to heaven. <laughs> We're about to participate in communion. Uh, you should have received a little self-contained uh, bread and cup in the shape of a little chalice. In fact, let me ask you, if, if you failed to get that when you came in, if you would raise your hand real high right now, the, the ushers will, will, will get one to you. And so if you, if you just keep your hand raised and, until they, they get to you with one of these, um, that would be awesome. We want everybody to be able to participate. And by the way, in our church, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, whether you're a member of this church or not, you can participate. We have an opportunity during this time to receive the incredible blessing of God's unique presence in a powerful way. But we first have to repent and come before him poor in spirit. We have to, to come to him with, with empty hands. If you come to the Lord's table this morning with hands full, that is full of whatever all those things are that are fooling you into thinking that you are making it okay without God's help, then you are not going to be in a position to receive of the blessing of his presence. We must come to him with empty hands. One of the old Puritans wrote, this is probably 300 years ago, if the hand is full of pebbles, it cannot receive 
the gold? Is your hand, are your hands empty this morning? Empty-handed humility. Being poor in spirit is where the blessing of God begins. Lord, we come empty-handed to commune with you this morning. We hold only the bread and the cup. Father, we, we humble our hearts before you as we remember with overwhelming gratitude what each of these elements represent. We hold the bread symbolizing the body of the Lord Jesus so freely offered as a sacrifice for us upon the cross. The Lord Jesus who died in our place that we might be set free, free from sin and death. Lord, we also hold the cup symbolizing the blood that your Son and our Savior willingly poured out for us upon the cross to pay the penalty of our sin, to secure our forgiveness. We thank you, thank you, thank you. We ask now that you would please bless us with your presence as we humbly partake. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. If you would now, you'll find the bread at the bottom of the chalice. His body given for us. And now, if you'll remove the top. His blood poured out for us. Lord, once again, we give you great, great thanks. When we consider all that you have done for us and given to us through Jesus Christ, how can we not repent? How can we not be humbled? How can we not lay aside our pride? and come to you each and every day, poor in spirit. Again, we thank you for the gift of your son, the gift, the free gift of our salvation through him. 
We thank you in his name. Amen.